Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening in on our Hilco Global Smarter Perspective podcasts. I'm your host, Steve Katz, and we're glad you could tune in today. Uh, we're going to be discussing some pretty important considerations for lenders that have existing or prospective borrowers involved in the tobacco industry. And joining us for that conversation is Hilco Valuation Services Valuation Director, Jason Gomes. Jason, thanks uh, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're uh, really glad to have you on. And uh, we haven't really covered, we've we've covered some cannabis-related topics in the past. We haven't really taken time to dive into uh, tobacco the way we're going to talk about it today. And um, there's obviously quite a bit going on in the industry with continued evolution of e-cigarettes and the regulatory considerations that are associated with that and traditional tobacco. So sure, there's much more that's challenging both operators and um, is also concerning to lenders. So let's get rolling. Um, I think it'd be great if you could just talk a little bit about how consumption of tobacco products has been trending recently, and then take us into some of those other developments. Sure, Steve, that's a great place to start. Uh, so about 28 million U.S. adults aged 18 years or older smoked cigarettes in 2021. That's close to 11, 12%. And while that may seem fa- like a fairly high percentage given uh, current medical knowledge, you know, widespread smoking education efforts, and Americans' increasingly healthy mindset. This figure represents a substantial decrease from a whopping 21% as recently as 2005. So regardless of, regardless of how you feel about smoking, this is a precipitous decline. Uh, in other regions like Europe, Asia, South America, rates have declined as well, but not to the degree that we've seen uh, in the States. And furthermore, sales for the cigarette and tobacco products wholesaling industry have shrunk significantly over the past five years. Um, wholesalers have had to deal with continually expanding regulatory and micro and macroeconomic challenges, as well as shifts in consumer preferences. So, you know, due to these factors in such a rapidly changing landscape, um, wholesalers have had to expand their product portfolios to capitalize on the explosive popularity of e-cigarettes. You know, these products have helped to partially offset declines experienced by the industry within their traditional cigarette, chew, and other tobacco product lines. Yeah, e-cigs popularity, particularly among teens and young adults, have skyrocketed over the last five years or so, which has driven, you know, concerns from parents and legislators, hence the increasing legislation. But the e-cig trend can really be traced back to more than 10 years ago, pretty much where when the industry began. I remember working on a valuation of uh, an e-cigarette manufacturer about 10 years ago. Uh, and the products have come a long way in terms of how they're consumed, different flavors, packaging, colors, et cetera. It's a huge market now. So, you know, although smoking rates have plummeted, uh, e-cigarette uses help to maintain steady sales overall. And demand for other non-cigarette tobacco products such as premium cigars, cigarillos, snuff has also been persistent, but um, uh, still revenue for the cigarette and tobacco products wholesaling industry has declined at a compound annual growth rate of 1% or so over the past five years, which is, I think it's about $150 billion that it hit in 2023, if I'm correct. And it's expected that, you know, given factors associated with inflation, 2023 alone, we'll see a revenue decrease in the range of 1.6% or so. It doesn't seem like much, but in such a large industry, it is a it is a decent chunk. Okay, so that, that's perfect. Let's sort of focus now on that regulatory environment, which obviously, you know, is quite complex, specifically as it pertains to the e-cigarettes or e-cigs, as you call them. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure thing. 
So regulations related to cigarette and tobacco products continue to grow across the nation. It's been an ongoing thing, primarily at the state level. For instance, uh, I recall in early 2022, uh, Massachusetts implemented a ban on all flavored tobacco products, including menthol cigarettes. I remember speaking to some folks who began driving to New Hampshire to get their menthol. So it wasn't a cure-all, but certainly a barrier to new uh, and younger smokers. I think that was you know, the goal. Um, in other locales and municipalities have imposed severe restrictions on where smoking is allowed, including many outdoor and public venues. Obviously, indoor locations such as bars and restaurants, um, they don't allow smoking. But of course, they used to. And so things have changed. Again, so much has changed, really, and continues to change when we talk about tobacco products, you know, their use, who are using these products, et cetera. So, yeah, skewing a lot, skewing a lot younger now, for sure. Yeah. And all that, you know, all that being said, it's safe to say uh, the pressure continues to mount right across the country on anything tobacco product related. Um, And this, you know, this is one of the. The, the reasons consumers have transitioned to e-cigarettes or vaping, which is considered by some to be less harmful, although, you know, as they're they're, they're less harmful, harmful because they're non-combustible products, basically, uh, without many of the traditional chemicals you'll find in a cigarette. But they're also vaping to wean off traditional cigarettes. So sort of a substitute to tr- try and get off uh, that traditional product. Um, obviously, that has a lot of health uh, impacts there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we're seeing more and more people... Uh who at least I know used to smoke and they're carrying some version of, um, of a e-cig or vaping, you know, type product to, in, at least it seems like what they're trying to do is wean themselves off that way. Right. Yeah. And a little more on, on regulations at the federal level rules pertaining to the set, the use of, of e-cigarettes are still a work in progress, really. You know, the, the U S food and drug administration first uh, assumed authority over these products only, you know, I think it was 2016. So that's relatively recently. Um, in the five years kind of leading up to that point, saw exponential growth in the production and popularity of e-cigarettes. Uh, I think, in fact, um, according to the CDC, uh, a 120% increase in the sale of those products took place in, in the span of, I think it was between 2014 and 2020. Yeah, that's immense. Yeah. Really, really incredible. Right. And I think even more recently, it's it's grown even even further. So it's... It's a it's a really a very rapid expansion, um, the market for e-cigs, um, and it, it helped. This market helped significantly boost wholesaler profits during that time. You know the stringent regulatory environment that's now taken hold, um, combined with the continued you know, social stigma of smoking and tobacco use overall, is uh, widely expected to to further. Uh, I would say the reduction of uh, traditional tobacco products and the consumption over the next five years and beyond, I'm sure. So I think for any lender, any potential lender, they should be aware of this, obviously this changing consumer landscape and regulatory environment um, when considering extending credit with a traditional t- tobacco distributor or manufacturer. Uh, I think that's important to know. And the ever change, I mean, the ever changing risks related to regulation and consumption alternatives add to the uncertainty of a declining industry and should definitely be monitored closely by any potential lender. At all good points, I think, uh, and very relevant to uh, the listeners, uh, particularly those who, who are lenders out there um, who follow these podcasts. So the question is, what can a lender really do to protect itself, right? From a diligence perspective, other perspective, what, what insights can you share on that? 
Right. Uh, diligence is certainly critical, Steve. First of all, um, I think we would advise diving into or looking at the nature of the business. It seems obvious, but this is key. Understanding the specific nature of the operations of a tobacco consumer products company as early as possible in the due diligence process, um, that would be key to a successful inventory appraisal outcome. It's critical to understand if the company is primarily a manufacturer uh, of items such as cigarettes or chewing tobacco, or are they a, a distributor of these products? Do they produce or dis- distribute uh, a variety of products or accessories such as lighters, or are they solely a cigarette maker or tobacco chew producer? Who who are their customers? Do they sell to distributors who in, tel- in turn sell into the convenience store and gas station marketplace? Uh, this is referred to as the measure market by tobacco manufacturers. Uh, or perhaps they're a smaller regional company that sells directly to such retailers. So it's it's certainly critical for a lender to fully understand the landscape, channels of distribution, and footprint of operations of any given company in this space, as you know, this can have a direct impact on inventory valuation. Right, a lot of different configurations, different different types of uh, businesses, and ways that they can be involved in the market. So a lot of uh, variables for lenders. What else? Some of the key products. If you want to get into that, I think the most common forms of of chewing tobacco. Let's start with that. It's what's called uh, moist snuff tobacco (MST) or commonly known as dip, uh, off, often in a variety of flavors and packaged in this hockey puck-like plastic container. And then there's the more traditional loose leaf chewing tobacco, which consists of uh, shredded tobacco leaf, which is usually sweetened by the manufacturer, sometimes flavored and uh, mainly sold in a sealed pouch. Um, in, in the cigarette world, there's approximately 25 brands of U.S. cigarettes sold across the country. Uh, a lot more than that globally, but domestically, that's about where we're at. Typically, you know, you got 20 cigarettes a pack. Um, recent trends suggest that consumers will be trading down from premium loose leaf chew, uh, more premium MST, uh, in cigarettes, premium cigarettes to discount brands, mainly due to worsening macroeconomic conditions and a potential re- recession. Um, so as a result of that, you know, discount product segments are poised to reap the results of this growing prospect in the coming quarters. So I think lenders must, you know, they really should understand potential is- issues associated with product expiration across the variety of these product offerings that I've just discussed uh, as well. I think that's important to note. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you a couple of those just, um, perfect. perfect. Um, yeah. It's, uh, typically loose, loose leaf chew expires after 12 months post-production. Um, I think dip or mo- moist snuff tobacco expires after six months and cigarettes after 24 months. So I think lenders must be aware that inventory expired or nearing expiration may require significant discounting. Uh, it may be subject to limited distribution channels and, and liquidation. So aging is certainly something, uh, aging and expiration is certainly something to, to keep in, in mind. Yeah. Okay. So, per, so perfect transition. I think, um, you know, when you talk about any business, especially things that expire, uh, things that do have a definitive shelf life and, you know, can't be, uh, can't be put in the warehouse and brought back to life, uh, <laughs> for sale another day, you know, five years down the line. Um, things get a little more complex. So what about maybe just dive a little more into some of these aging issues and, um, other inventory oriented concerns for lenders? Sure. Um, I think it's worthwhile to discuss 
the raw material tobacco, you know, before it becomes an actual product uh, that we've discussed thoroughly here. But, you know, raw material tobacco is commodity-like in nature. So think soybeans, dairy, eggs, meat, items like that, which trade on a commodity market. It Tobacco requires what's referred to as a natural aging process. This lasts between two and three years, believe it or not. Uh, during the aging process, tobacco undergoes two sweating processes, which typically occur in the spring and late summer, fall. Um, and then there's this, you know, this curing and a subsequent aging, which follows that. And it, it allows for the slow oxidation and degradation of carotenoids in the tobacco leaf itself. So tobacco is then after that process is completed, it's then um, stored in wooden barrels called hogsheads. This is to complete the aging process. So um, they almost look like wine casts if you've ever seen one of those. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but it's, yeah, so it's important for, for a potential lender to understand where in the aging process the raw, the raw material tobacco is um, during the diligence process as well to better understand the potential for sale and liquidation. I think that's important. Uh, I've seen these hogsheads a number of times where, you know, where the tobacco is stored and at, at some storage facility, storage and aging facilities, they, they simply write the age on the outside of the barrel and update it as time goes on. So it's not necessarily a sophisticated or automated yeah. system necessarily that's in place at these facilities. So I would say lenders should, should certainly take note of that as well. And one last thing on that, uh, tobacco, which is not yet fully sweated, cured or aged, may not be as sellable as that tobacco, which has completed the process, uh, which is a true commodity designation. It seems obvious, but you know, it's a, it's a long process. So sometimes it does take a while to get to that final state. And, okay, great. So what about, you know, again, it's, we're talking about a sort of a natural, you know, more natural product here. So what about harm that can be caused by pests or other outside influences associated with nature? Right. So there, yes, I agree. There's, there are certainly pests or, or things in nature that may impact uh, the crop. So I think one to note is a pest called Lasioderma sericornae, better known as the cigarette beetle. The cigarette beetle is always a concern facing tobacco storage facilities. These tiny critters, they're typically like two to three millimeters long. Uh, they can infiltrate quickly and, and cause significant damage to the crop if those looking after the tobacco do not take the proper precautions. So storage vendors must regularly fumigate warehouses proactively, and in some cases retroactively. Um, as if it's, it's a fine balance here, preventing the beetle infil, in, infiltration. Um, one example is I, re- I recently visited one of the largest and uh, better run tobacco aging and storage companies in Tennessee, and they walked me through their beetle risk mitigation process. And uh, I witnessed firsthand the kind of damage that such small insects can can cause to the tobacco in a relatively short amount of time. So uh, you, know, you, pre- know, you definitely yeah. know it's a problem when they have something called a beetle risk mitigation process. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you think it's it's not a big deal, but it really can be. Um, so there, it, these warehouses are really spot clean, and it's still uh, these 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 problems do arise from from the the insect, but. Um, yeah, the, the warehouse that I was at, um, they had a, a small problem with it. They, they typically have it from year to year, but, uh, you know, luckily they caught it early enough and damage was minimal, but the, they really need to stay on top of that uh, yeah. for sure. Um, and what about, um, market pricing, you know, right. the nature of inventory? Yeah, it's important. That's, that's a good segue 
um, from the commodity, um, tobacco. Uh, so clearly any potential lender should monitor the commodity price for tobacco on a regular basis. Um, particularly if a cup, co- if a company is a manufacturer and carries or owns a significant amount of raw tobacco on hand. Uh, or being aged at a third-party vendor. Um, secured lenders should also understand what inventory categories are commodity-like within the tobacco producer's overall product mix. Uh, commodity-like inventory generally has a very large potential customer base in a liquidation scenario and generally requires relatively minor levels of discounting below market price to, to incentivize purchasing. But uh, also on the on the flip side of that, uh, rapid decreases in market prices for such a commodity can leave a company carrying inventory at a high cost basis relative to current market prices. Uh, and although the the commodity market price for tobacco has been relatively stable in recent years, you know, bad crop or certain adverse weather patterns may have a negative impact on the harvest and could lead to pricing volatility. One, one, last, one last point on this. I think it would also be wise for any commodity-driven business uh, to engage in some form of commodity futures hedging to mitigate the risk of pricing volatility. So, I would, you know, a lender would be advised to, you know, understand if any hedging activity uh, is involved in, in the company they're looking at and a potential engagement. Yeah, that that last uh, item is a good point. Definitely important consideration for lenders. All right. Well, we are uh, just about out of time. Anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to pass along? Yeah. Um, a couple of quick but uh, important final thoughts here. Um, first, related to costing of inventory. We discussed inventory in length, but uh, inventory costing methodologies across set different segments, such as raw material, work in process, and finished goods should be thoroughly understood, uh, including the impact related to ever-changing commodity input costs, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, so this includes understanding uh, whether inventory is costed at standard or some other method uh, in which components are included. You know, is it labor, freight, overhead, federal excise taxes, duty? You know, what's in that standard? This would be a critical item in an inventory valuation, uh, just trying to differentiate and understand the differences there. Uh, also, as uh, information on a potential borrower is, is gathered, I'd recommend that the, the lender share this information with the appraisal firm prior to appraisal engagement um, as early as possible. Sharing this info tends to facilitate a more efficient process uh, in areas such as initial inventory recovery and guidance and, and just general report setup. Uh, and lastly, one other item I think is worthy of mention is related to assortment mix. Any, I would say any potential lender should definitely monitor the, the inventory level mix frequently. Uh, finished goods would recover at a higher rate than raw material tobacco in a sale. Um, you know, therefore shift in, in any mix from finished goods to raw materials would have a negative impact on the overall recovery values, the blended recovery yep. values provided in a liquidation. So yep. in this industry, in the tobacco industry, companies do tend to carry significant amounts of raw aged and sweated tobacco. But, that you know, this product still, being that it's a commodity, tends to recover quite high. Um, so that's, that's also important to know. In, you know, I recently uh, valued a large publicly traded tobacco, tobacco consumer product manufacturer and over 50% of their inventory was raw material tobacco. But as mentioned, you know, that's, there wasn't necessarily a hindrance to their recoveries uh, because it, it is a, such a commodity. So, you know, we would certainly recommend that any lender establish separate advance rates for finished goods and raw materials, which would capture changes to inventory uh, valuation due to any inventory mix shifts. I think yeah, that's, no, that's, uh, that's an excellent point. Not, it's not the case for every industry, obviously. So 
Right. That's a, right. that's a really good point. And, you know, just one of the many things that lenders really need to understand about this market, which is uh, why we were glad to have you on. So thanks for joining us today, Jason, um, to share all this information for lenders to the tobacco market. And if any listeners do want to reach out to you with a follow-up question, what's the best way to get hold of you? Yeah, sure. It can be reached by email or phone. Uh, my email is jgomes at hilcoglobal.com. Uh, so that's J-G-O-M-E-S at hilcoglobal.com. And uh, my phone number is 857-403-3093. All right. Perfect. Great info. Really appreciate you joining us. And listeners, if you're lending or looking to lend into uh, a business that's involved in the tobacco industry, I think as you can hear from what Jason uh, summarized, I'm sure just briefly today, um, there's a lot of information that you need to know and uh, can really assist you uh, in your efforts. So um, as always, we hope the Smarter Perspective podcast provided you with at least one key takeaway that you can put to good use in your business or share with a colleague or client to help make them that much more successful moving forward. Until next time for Hilco Global, I'm Steve Katz.